Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 14, Make It Happen. The topic of this episode is the sovereignty of God. We're going to get into that in a minute, but first I want to remind you to send me your challenges to the view of the human soul explained to us by Dr. Glenn Peoples in episode 12. I've received some great challenges to pass on from a couple of you, uh, and of course I'm compiling my own list from some resources available to me, but time is running out uh, to have your say. Today is October 13th as I record these words, and in just a week and one day I'll be interviewing Glenn for part two of our discussion on physicalism. So if you have a question you'd like him to answer, please get it to me as soon as you can. Also, I I hope you found episode 13's interview with Justin Brierley encouraging. I know that I did. Although I've got a great confidence in the Christian faith and in the reliability of the Bible, I I will admit that, that, uh, that I find intimidating the thought of spending week after week exposing myself to some of the brightest minds in opposition to Christianity, even with, you know, a learned defender of the faith on the other side of the microphone. The fact that Justin has not has not just remained a believer, but has grown in his faith as a result of his years hosting the show is, is I think, a powerful testimony. Lastly, before I play a promo and, and move into today's topic, remember that the Theapologetics podcast is available both in the iTunes store and the Zoom marketplace. Two great places to let me know what you think of my podcast by writing a brief comment uh, and also rating the show. Whether there or via email sent to theapologetics at hotmail.com, I would greatly appreciate your feedback. I really want to grow as a podcaster. I don't, I don't mean in terms of audience size, but you know, in terms of the quality and enjoyability of my presentation. You know, I want you to enjoy and, and, and learn from the show. And your feedback, whether critical or otherwise, is the only way that I'm going to, uh, to be able to grow in that way. So please do send me feedback either at the Zoom Marketplace or the iTunes Store or via email. Uh, I'd very much appreciate it. So I'm going to play a promo for Glenn's show, uh, because that's the next one in my rotation. So give it a listen. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store or check us out online, beretta-online.com. Do check out Glenn's blog and podcast. Uh, Even if you don't agree with his view of the human soul, I think that you're going to find what he's uh, written about and what he podcasts about thought-provoking, interesting, fascinating, um, (laughs) plenty of uh, adjectives I could use to describe the material that he presents. So... Check him out, and with that, let's move into today's topic. It's been my experience that many Christians are completely unaware of a biblical teaching held by countless of Christians throughout history. When I first introduce them to it, they find it laughably crazy at first. In fact, it was suggested at my blog recently that I'd lost it for this very reason. Those Christians who take any time to actually research this topic from Scripture with any sincerity will often have the same experience that I did when I was first challenged with this doctrine. 
Um, they'll fight it tooth and nail at first, uh, but over time they'll become increasingly compelled by the clear biblical witness, increasingly recognizing that their objections are purely philosophical and unfounded in scripture, and, and they'll eventually submit to the authority of the Bible. That's what I did. Uh, in fact, a good friend of mine and fellow member of my church recently underwent this very process, and you know, I can't tell you how blessed I feel to have been able to assist him in it. But those Christians, however, who do not take this teaching seriously and simply read their physical, uh, philosophical objections into the biblical testimony will either consider those of us who understand Scripture in this way as misguided uh, or, or as utterly heretical, calling our position dark and dangerous, uh, hideous and horrific. What is this dark and hideous heresy we deceivers throughout history have preached? Are you ready to be horrified? You've got it. I'm talking about... Calvinism. Yes, that's right. Today I'm introducing the doctrine typically referred to as Calvinism, otherwise known as Reformed Soteriology. Uh, soteriology just means the study of salvation. The doctrines of grace, or simply as predestination. Calvinism will likely come up many times throughout the life of this podcast, but what I'd like to do, especially since many of my listeners are probably new to this biblical doctrine, it spends several episodes, not necessarily one after the other, but <clears throat> several episodes explaining the so-called five points of Calvinism. Explaining what they are, what they're not, providing their biblical basis, and refuting challenges leveled against them. For those of you not terribly familiar with Calvinism and its five points, the word TULIP serves as an acronym or acrostic where each of the letters in the word begin phrases which together define the Reformed view of salvation. In future episodes, we'll look at the history of Calvinism and how its five points developed, but I'll save that for later. Let me begin by explaining the five points for you, and I'm going to read from Dr. James White's The Potter's Freedom, since I think he's one of the best modern defenders of Reformed doctrine. The first letter of the word tulip, the letter T, stands for total depravity. Dr. White puts it this way, quote, Man is dead in sin, completely and radically impacted by the fall, the enemy of God, incapable of saving himself. This does not mean that man is as evil as he could be, nor does it mean that the image of God is destroyed or that the will is done away with. Instead, it refers to the all-pervasiveness of the effects of sin and the fact that man is, outside of Christ, the enemy of God." Unquote. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, in case it's not clear, what this means is that we believe that because man is by his very nature in opposition to God, Left to, own, left to his own devices, he will never turn to God. So that's total depravity. The second letter is the letter U, which stands for unconditional election. Again, quoting Dr. White, God elects a specific people unto himself without reference to anything they do. This means the basis of God's choice of the elect is solely within himself, his grace, his mercy, his will. It is not man's actions, works, or even foreseen faith that draws God's choice. God's election is unconditional and final, unquote. I think he puts it pretty well, so I won't comment further. The third letter is the letter L, which stands for limited atonement. The Potter's Freedom reads, quote, Since it is God's purpose to save a special people for himself, and he has chosen to do so only through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Christ came to give his life a ransom for many so as to save his people from their sins. That's from Matthew 121. The intention of Christ in his cross work was to save his people specifically. 
therefore christ's sacrifice is perfect and complete for it actually accomplishes perfect redemption unquote. now not all professing calvinists hold to this doctrine and they call themselves four-point calvinists after all, it sounds crazy to some to say that Christ's sacrifice was specifically for the elect and not for all mankind. Uh, we'll get into this more in depth later, but for now I just want to affirm that I do, in fact, believe this doctrine. Uh, I'm almost tempted to play the scream sound bite again, but I hope you don't stop listening to my podcast as a result of my affirming this. The fourth letter is the letter I, which stands for Irresistible Grace. Quote, This is the belief that God is able to raise the spiritually dead sinner to life. This is an act of efficient grace. When God chooses to bring one of his elect to spiritual life, it is an act similar to when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Just as Lazarus was incapable of resisting the power of Christ in raising him from the dead, so too the dead sinner is incapable of resisting the power of God that raises him to spiritual life. This is not to say that men have not resisted God's grace. This doctrine speaks specifically to the grace that brings regeneration not to individual acts of sin committed by believers or unbelievers, end quote. One thing I want to clarify, for those listeners not familiar with the term regeneration, it refers to the process by which a sinner's dead heart of stone, as the Bible puts it, is regenerated, made unto or replaced by, uh, metaphorically speaking, a living heart of flesh. In other words, being born again, as Jesus put it, born in spirit. Finally, the fifth letter is the letter P, which stands for Perseverance of the Saints. Here is how Dr. White puts it, quote, Some prefer saying the preservation of the saints to emphasize that this is the work of God. Others use the phrase eternal security to emphasize the impossibility of God's perfect work of salvation being undone. But whatever one calls it, it is the belief that when Christ saves one of his elect, he will not fail to keep that saved person throughout life and bring them safely into his presence. It is, in short, the belief that Christ is able to save perfectly, end quote. Some listeners are probably familiar with the phrase, once saved, always saved, which is, I think, an intentionally crude way of putting it. But it does, to a certain extent, communicate the point, when one's heart has been regenerated and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, nothing can tear one from God's hands, not even oneself. These, then, are the five petals of the tulip that summarize Reformed doctrine, or Calvinism, or whatever you want to call it. In short, man is depraved and by nature opposed to God and will never, if left to his own devices, choose to turn to God. He is totally depraved. Because man will never choose by his own volition to turn to God, God chooses to save some people from their natural state and does so solely based on his own grace, mercy, and will, not contingent upon any past or future work of the person. He unconditionally elects people. Because God chooses only some to be saved and only those whom God chooses will turn to him, the cross did not make salvation possible for all mankind. Rather, it effected salvation certainly and specifically for the elect. This, the, the atonement is limited. Just as Lazarus had no choice but to rise when Jesus called him from the tomb, so too are spiritually dead sinners raised unto spiritual life without the ability to resist. God's saving grace is irresistible. And because the cross did not result merely in the opportunity be, to be saved, but resulted in the actual salvation of the elect, the elect are preserved. They persevere. They are eternally secure. Now, this episode is only intended to introduce the five points of Calvinism. I'm not 100% certain, but tentatively I plan to devote one full episode to each of the five points in upcoming episodes. Furthermore, I won't in this episode go deep into even the first of the points. Rather, I'm going to follow the advice I recently heard Dr. White give to a caller into his show, The Dividing Line. 
basically, I think the tulip has a sixth petal, the sovereignty of God, and that it is so foundational that it really deserves to be discussed as the first. Unfortunately, STULIP doesn't make for much of an acronym, so it probably won't catch on, but anyway. Now, what do I mean by the sovereignty of God? Most Christians who aren't Calvinists would affirm that they do believe God is sovereign. But those Christians, I don't think, really mean the same thing we mean when we speak of the sovereignty of God. As Dr. White puts it in the book I've been quoting from, quote, It has become fashionable to confess belief in the sovereignty of God. So many are quick to say, oh yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Yet, when pressed to believe consistently that God truly can do as he pleases without getting permission from anyone, including man, we discover that many who in fact confess such a belief in practice deny it. Unquote. You see, it's not just that God is the king of the universe in the sense that it all belongs to him and that he rules over it all, but that decisions can be made and that things can happen under his rule which were out of his control. No. Here is what we mean when we speak of the sovereignty of God, and I'm going to quote from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Quote, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says that God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. The word translated accomplishes, energeo, indicates that God works or brings about all things according to his own will. No event in creation falls outside of his providence, end quote. Do you see the not-so-subtle difference between this understanding of God's sovereignty and that view which sees him merely as a king on a throne in whose kingdom things happen which are out of his control? Nothing that takes place, nothing, happens outside the sovereign will of God. He is in control over everything. Nothing he does not allow to happen will happen. And nothing happens that he did not ultimately will to happen. This is the sovereignty of God. Now, of course, all sorts of issues arise from this, such as, but the Bible says God is not the author of sin, and God desires that no man perish, but that all would be saved. And we'll get into all of that in future episodes. But in this episode, I really want to focus on demonstrating that the Bible very loudly and consistently proclaims this view of God's sovereignty. First, however, lest anybody think that this view of God's sovereignty is a novel one, uh, which originated in John Calvin some 450 years ago or so, let's look at what some of the earliest church fathers had to say. Clement of Rome, writing in the first century in his letter to the Corinthians, wrote, By the word of his might he established all things, and by his word he can overthrow them. Who shall say unto him, What have you done? Or who shall resist the power of his strength? When and as he pleases, he will do all things, and none of the things determined by him shall, be pass, uh, shall pass away. Theophilus, or Theophilus, I'm guessing it's probably Theophilus, wrote in the second century in his To Autolycus, In glory he is incomprehensible, in greatness unfathomable, in height inconceivable, in power incomparable, in wisdom unrivaled, in goodness inimitable, in kindness unutterable. He is called God on account of his having placed all things on security afforded by himself, and on account of running and moving and being active and nourishing and foreseeing and governing and making all things alive. But he is Lord because he rules over the universe, Father because he is before all things, fashioner and maker because he is creator and maker of the universe, the highest because of his being above all, and almighty because he himself rules and embraces all. Irenaeus, writing in the second century, wrote in book three of his Against Heresies, 
God does, however, exercise a providence over all things, and therefore he also gives counsel. And when giving counsel, he is present with those who attend to moral discipline. It follows then, of course, that the things which are watched over and governed should be acquainted with their ruler, which things are not irrational or vain, but they have understanding derived from the providence of God. And for this reason, certain of the Gentiles, by his providence, were nevertheless convinced that they should call the maker of this universe the Father, who exercises a providence over all things and arranges the affairs of our world. Eusebius, living in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, in his Oration in Praise of Constantine, wrote, Thus the Almighty Sovereign himself accords an increase both of years and of children to our most pious emperor, and renders his, way, his sway over the nations of the world still fresh and flourishing, as though it were even now springing up in its earliest vigor. He it is who appoints him this present festival, in that he has made him victorious over every enemy that disturbed his peace." In case it's not clear, what Eusebius is saying there is that God has done all of this for Constantine, given him children and, lo and long life, and he's made him victorious over his enemies. And then finally, Augustine in the 5th century, I believe, wrote, For these things are both commanded us and are shown to be God's gifts, in order that we may understand both that we do them and that God makes us do them. As he most plainly says by the prophet Ezekiel, For what is plainer than when he says, I will cause you to do? Give heed to that passage of scripture, and you will see that God promises that he will make them do those things which he commands to be done. Now, of course, it is possible that Clement of Rome, Theophilus, Irenaeus, Eusebius, and Augustine were all wrong. It can't even be shown that the early church was unanimous on this point, but neither those early teachers who affirmed the absolute sovereignty of God, nor those early teachers who did not view God's sovereignty in this way, serve as our authority. The infallible, inerrant, breathed-out words of God contained in Scripture are the authority against which we need to test this or any other teaching. The question is, as I've asked in previous episodes, whose view does Scripture support? Does it support the view held by we Calvinists and taught by the early fathers we've looked at? Does the Bible present God as a king whose kingdom is on some level out of his control? I'm going to continue to rely heavily upon both James White's The Potter's Freedom and Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, for no other reason than that it saves me from having to do all the research. I'm going to start with Grudem because I think he demonstrates this teaching in a more step-by-step -step systematic way, which I guess is appropriate given the title of his work. He begins by demonstrating biblically that God is in control over inanimate creation. By pointing out that whereas many of what we commonly think of as natural occurrences were in fact caused by God to happen. Now I'm going to quote passages from a variety of translations just to show that this is not... Um, something unique to one translation or anything like that. So Psalm 148, 8 uh, in the New Living Translation speaks of fire and hail, snow and clouds, wind and weather that obey him. In Job chapter 37, verses 6 to 13, the NASB records Elihu as saying, For to the snow, God says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north the cold. For the breath of God ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture he loads the thick cloud, he disperses the cloud of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. 
And it's not just Elihu who speaks of God as having this kind of control over creation. The Lord answers Job in Job 38:22 to 30 and rhetorically asks, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has left a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew, from whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. We're told in Psalm 135, 6-7 in the NIV, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. And in the, uh, the next sentence, the psalmist continues, He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth, he sends lightning with the rain, and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 104, verse 4 in the New Living Translation says, The winds are your messengers, flames of fire are your servants. The psalmist, speaking to God in Psalm 104.14, in the English Standard Version, says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Speaking of Ursa Major, or the Big Dipper, God rhetorically asks Job in Job 38.32, in the NASB, Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? And Jesus, God in human flesh, says in Matthew 5.45 in the NASB that the Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This very small sampling of the biblical data demonstrates that the whole of the inanimate creation, weather, foliage, bodies of water, stars, it's all firmly under God's control. But this is not all that God controls under heaven. Grudem continues his biblical case for God's sovereignty by demonstrating God's control over the animal kingdom. God is told in Psalm 104.27 in the New Living Translation that the wild animals of the field all depend on you to give them food as they need it. When you supply it, they gather it. You open your hand to feed them and they are richly satisfied. But if you turn away from them, they panic. When you take away their breath, they die and turn again to dust. Likewise, God asks Job in Job 38, verses 39 to 41 in the New International Version, Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6:26 in the NASB to look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he told the disciples in Matthew 10:29 that not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. So God isn't only in sovereign control over inanimate creation. He's in control over the lives of animals as well. So too is he in control over what humans think are the result of random chance, like rolling dice or flipping a coin or playing roulette. Uh, Proverbs 16:33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That was from the NIV. And God is, control, is in control over the affairs of nations. In, the, in Job 12.23, the English Standard Version tells us that God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. In Psalm 22.28, the New King James Version reads, The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. 
Paul said in Acts 17, 26, uh, as recorded by the New Living Translation, that from one man, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. And in Acts 14, 16, the New Living Translation reads, In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And Nebuchadnezzar praised God in Daniel 4, verses 34 to 35, saying, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? So God has sovereign control over inanimate creation and seemingly random chance occurrences. Uh, he has sovereign control over the animal kingdom and over the affairs of human nations and kingdoms. But again, God's sovereign control doesn't end there. Grudem continues to demonstrate the sovereignty of God, writing, It is amazing to see the extent to which Scripture affirms that God brings about various events in our lives. Unquote. Grudem cites Matthew 6.11, which in the NASB reads, Give us this day our daily bread. And Philippians 4.19, which in the New Living Translation reads, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs. Grudem goes on to point out that, quote, God plans our days before we are born, unquote. In the New International Version rendering of Psalm 139.16, the psalmist says to God, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In Job 14.5, in the New King James Version, uh, Job is depicted as telling God that man's days are determined. The number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Paul said in Galatians 1.15 uh, in the uh, New American Standard Bible that God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. And God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, as rendered by the New Living Translation, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Grudem continues writing, Quote, all our actions are under God's providential care. In the New International Version, Jeremiah 10.23 reads, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. The Amplified Bible in Proverbs 20.24 reads, Man's steps are ordered by the Lord. In the New Living Translation, Proverbs 16.9 reads, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And the New International Version renders Proverbs 16.1 to read, To man belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. Grudem further points out that, quote, Success and failure come from God, unquote. Psalm 75, verses 6-7 in the English Standard Version reads, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. In Luke 1, 52, the New American Standard Version depicts Mary as saying, He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. Even the gift of children is from God, for in Psalm 127, verse 3, the New Living Translation reads, Children are a gift from the Lord, they are a reward from Him. Next, Grudem writes, All our talents and abilities are from the Lord. He points out that Paul asks the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 
David said of God in Psalm 18, verse 34, He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. That was the New King James Version. Continuing, Grudem demonstrates that, quote, God influences rulers in their decisions, unquote. He points out that the Amplified Bible's rendition of Proverbs 21, verse 1 reads, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as are the watercourses. He turns it whichever way he wills. Ezra 6, 22 reads as follows in the NLT. The Lord had caused the king of Assyria to be favorable to them so that he helped them to rebuild the temple of God. And Ezra 1, 1 reads in the New International Version, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This divine influence is not just exercised upon kings. Psalm 33, verses 14 to 15, speaks of God, saying, as rendered by the NASB, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all. And Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13, as rendered by the NLT, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So after all of this uh, biblical evidence, Grudem concludes, quote, All of these passages reporting both general statements about God's work in the lives of all people and specific examples of God's work in the lives of individuals lead us to conclude that God's providential work of concurrence extends to all aspects of our lives. Our works, our steps, our movements, our hearts, and our abilities are all from the Lord. Now I'm going to move from Grudem uh, back to Dr. White, where in The Potter's Freedom, in a chapter entitled The Vital Issue, he adds further biblical support to what he calls the free and proper kingship of God. Isaiah 14, verse 27, as rendered by the ESV, reads, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? The NASB renders Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 as, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In Psalm 33, verses 8 to 11, as rendered by the NIV, the psalmist declares, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Dr. White writes, quote, The biblical testimony could be expanded almost indefinitely. God is king over all the earth. As the creator, it is his to do with as he chooses. This concept is brought out with striking clarity in the analogy of the potter and the clay. A number of times in scripture, God likens himself to a potter and we as clay or as pots, formed and fashioned as he wishes. This sovereign power is seen in God's dealings with Israel. He sent Jeremiah the prophet to the potter's house and recorded this incident in Jeremiah 18 verses 4 to 6, end quote. Here is that passage which White cites, as rendered by the New Living Translation. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message, O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to, this, to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Continuing to quote Dr. White, God could refashion and remake Israel as he pleased. He did not have to ask permission, seek advice, or in any way consult anyone or anything outside of himself. The entire nation was as the clay in the potter's hand. Clay has no inherent rights, no basis upon which to complain about the potter's decisions, no say in what the potter does. 
The vast gulf that separates the created from the Creator is highlighted in these words from Isaiah 29:16 in the New International Version. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? Dr. White goes on to write, quote, The very idea of what is formed, speaking to the one who formed it, it is supposed to strike within us the absurdity of man, the creature, thinking that God is to be thought of as existing on the same plane, the same level as man. The sheer stupidity of man arguing with his maker comes up yet again a little later in Isaiah 40, 45, 9, as rendered by the NASB, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing, or the thing you are making, say he has no hands? Moving on from the powerful analogy of the potter and the clay, Dr. White goes on to write, quote, One of the most striking evidences of God's sovereign control over the affairs of men is hidden from a cursory reading of the scriptures. It is buried in some of the history of the Old Testament. Think carefully about these words. Unquote. Dr. White quotes from Isaiah 10, verses 5 to 7, which read as follows in the New Living Translation. What sorrow awaits Assyria, the rod of my anger? I use it as a club to express my anger. I am sending Assyria against a godless nation, against a people with whom I am angry. Assyria will plunder them, trampling them like dirt beneath its feet. But the king of Assyria will not understand that he is my tool. His mind does not work that way. His plan is simply to destroy, to cut down nation after nation. Unquote. Dr. White points out that, quote, the woe he is announcing is on the very instrument he is using to punish Israel. While God says he is using Assyria, he likewise says he will punish them for their intentions, unquote. And he goes on to cite Isaiah 10, verses 12 to 17, which in the New International Version reads, When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As men gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Or the saw boast against him who uses it? As if a rod were to wield him who lifts it up, or a club brandish him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. Upon, under his pomp a fire will be kindled, kindled like a blazing flame. The light of Israel will become a fire, their holy one a flame. In a single day it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. Dr. White continues, When God completes his work in Jerusalem, he will punish the arrogance of the Assyrians. He points out the foolishness of the Assyrian thinking that he is operating separately from God's sovereign decree. This is the essence of the rhetorical questions concerning the axe, the saw, the club, and the rod, all instruments in the hand of another. Next, White presents us with the example of Joseph and his brothers, writing, quote, After the death of Jacob, Joseph's brothers were fearful of reprisals due to their treatment of Joseph years before. As they cowered before their powerful sibling, Joseph wept, realizing that his brothers still did not understand how he had forgiven, nor how God had worked in the circumstances. So he says to them, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. 
So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. White points out that Joseph, quote, saw the overriding hand of God, guiding, directing, and ultimately meaning in the same action to bring about good, unquote. And as one final and perhaps most powerful example of the sovereignty of God, Dr. White writes, quote, By far the greatest example of this is found in the pinnacle of God's work of redemption, the cross of Jesus Christ. Surely no one can suggest that the cross was an afterthought, a desperate attempt to fix things after all had gone awry. Jesus taught his disciples that it was necessary that he go to Jerusalem and die, in Mark 8.31 and Luke 9.22. The early church had the proper understanding of the relationship of God's sovereign decree and the evil men showed in the act of nailing the sinless Son of God to a tree. As they prayed to God in the face of the persecution of the religious authorities, this truth came out in striking clarity. Unquote. And then White cites Acts 4, 27-30, which in the New Living Translation reads, In fact, this has happened here in this very city, for Herod Antipas... I probably pronounce that horribly. Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. White concludes this section saying, quote, The church prays to the sovereign of the universe, the one who rules and reigns over all authorities, including those who are persecuting the church. Just as Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and even the people of Israel had gathered against Christ, so too the early church faced the wrath of governing authorities. Yet these Christians knew something that many today have forgotten. What took place at Calvary had been predestined by the sovereign decree of God. No human being had the power to raise a hand against the Savior unless God so determined. Yet again we find one single act, freely engaged in by evil men for evil motives, yet at the same time, eternally predestined for good by God. The potter is indeed free. He can and does decree whatsoever comes to pass for his own glory. I wholeheartedly concur with Dr. White and Wayne Grudem, indeed with the inspired word of God, which consistently and loudly proclaims that God has this kind of sovereign control over all creation, including human beings and their thoughts and actions. We'll get into the five points of Calvinism in upcoming episodes, but I think that it's important that we acknowledge first that the Bible teaches that all the goings-on here on earth are in fact under God's control. He is sovereign. We in Western society have bought hook, line, and sinker into the very Greek idea of free will. We cherish the belief that we have the complete freedom and ability, ability to choose whatever we will, and yet this idea is taught explicitly nowhere in Scripture. On the other hand, as we've seen, what is taught explicitly, time and time again, consistently throughout the whole Bible, is that God has this kind of free will. It is God who has complete freedom and ability to choose whatever he wills, and he exercises that right over the decisions and actions of mankind. This clear teaching of scripture isn't always easy to swallow, particularly in Western culture, but as I told Glenn Peoples in episode 12, those who deny that God has this kind of sovereignty have a biblical, theological problem. Scripture doesn't support their view. Those of us, however, who do recognize God's sovereignty we might have a philosophical problem in that our view doesn't fit well with the Western philosophical understanding of free will. 
But I'd rather have that kind of problem than to deny the clear and consistent teaching of Scripture. Now, if you, despite the biblical testimony we've looked at together, don't acknowledge this, uh, if you claim that, I don't know, perhaps the Bible is speaking metaphorically or something like that, or is using hyperbole, I'm going to make a provocative statement. I think you're lying, if not to me, then to yourself. Now, why do I say that? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thanked God for something? Have you ever thanked him for a job, a promotion, a good grade? Have you thanked him for good traffic so that you could get somewhere on time? Have you thanked him for a cured sickness, the birth of a healthy child, uh, escaping by hair's breadth from being hit by a car or something like that? Have you thanked God for food on your table, last minute income to pay for a bill, the love of your spouse? How about the election of a godly candidate to government office? And think about prayer. Have you ever prayed that God would give you any of these things? I think the answer to these questions is obvious. Every single day, we thank God for things and ask God for things which he could not do for us unless he has this level of sovereign control. Think of just how much control God has to have over the decisions of people and other things to give you any of the things that you pray for or thank him for. Consider just one example given to me by a friend of mine. When he was a young boy, he was walking down the sidewalk and was hit by a car. And the uh, immediately behind the car that hit him was an ambulance. Now, it, as it turned out, the ambulance wasn't on its way to an emergency or returning from an emergency, wasn't on the way to a hospital or anything like that. Uh, and he, my friend recalls the ambulance driver saying that uh, he was on his way somewhere where he normally, he takes a normal route to, but that for no apparent reason, he decided to take a different turn than he normally does. Now, because ambulance was there to care for my friend after he was hit, he was comforted and cared for and taken to the hospital much more quickly than he would have been had the ambulance not been there. Now, I think that we could all imagine a scenario just like this. And no doubt each of us would thank God that the ambulance was so fortunately present. But think about this carefully for a moment. What human choices must God have control over to bring things about in just this way? In order to get the ambulance at the, to the right place at the right time, he must have at minimum controlled the decisions of the ambulance driver. But that's not all. What about the decisions of countless other drivers in the area at that time? Had any of numerous other drivers decided to take a different turn, to go faster, to go slower than they did, anything like that, to leave later from their, from their origin or to arrive later at their destination? The ambulance driver would very likely have been farther ahead or farther behind and would not have been there to help my friend out at just the right time. And it's not just the decisions of people that he must have controlled. He must have exercised sovereign control over the timing of traffic lights. Uh, he must have prevented other emergencies that could have diverted the ambulance elsewhere, and so on and so forth. In such a situation, I submit to you that yes, even you, who does not agree with the sovereignty of God, as I've explained it today, would be thanking God that the ambulance was in the right place at the right time to help you out. And indeed, I submit that you thank God frequently under very similar circumstances. The simple fact of the matter is, even if we didn't have the enormous volume of biblical evidence that we've looked at, we all inherently know that this is actually how sovereign God is. We thank God for events out of our control, and we pray God would bless us with good things. And we wouldn't do those things if we didn't think that God can, in fact, make it happen. I want to thank you so much for joining me today, and I pray that you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. And because I believe in the sovereignty of God, I know that if that's God's will, He will make it happen.